Hi everyone, this is Holly Herndon. I'm Matt Dryhurst. And you're listening to Interdependence. Hi there. How's it going? Doing good. Thank you. How are both of you? We're pretty good. We're suffering from allergy season a little bit, but it's on its way out. I'm optimistic. Yeah, we're, we're good. There's a lot going on. The sun's out. Things are coming back. There's just a dizzying number of projects across different fields that we're quite excited about, including your own. And for those who have no idea who you are, would you mind introducing yourself, please? Oh, sure. Hi, everyone. So my name is Hanoi. I'm calling in from Shanghai, China, where we just came out of a very, very long lockdown. So I've been enjoying the sun and enjoying all the food and a little bit about me. So I, I guess I guess when I describe myself, there's there's three words that, that I use. I'm a AI, AI research scientist. I used to work at Google in as an AI resident in the Magenta team. And now I'm a research scientist in the speech audio music intelligence team at TikTok. And I work primarily in the neural audio synthesis domain. So figuring out how to use AI and machine learning models to synthesize music and synthesize sound, and particularly in the real-time domain. So really figuring out how to get these systems running on device, you know, running inside your DAWs in a way that makes sense for musicians. If you've read the Differentiable Digital Signal Processing paper or the DDSP library, I was one of the co-authors of that open source library. If you've played around with Tone Transfer, I was one of the lead developers of that and also the most recently released VST Morph from TikTok. I'm also what I, I guess I use the word cultural technologist, which is a play on the word creative technologist. And a lot of the work that is important to me is thinking about how we can use emerging technologies technologies to reimagine what culture can be and specifically culture from Southeast Asia and you know from where I was born and grew up in Thailand to the whole Asia Pacific. So I have projects in the past where I've taken 3D printing and reimagined fiddles from Southeast Asia using 3D printing and a lot of my AI machine learning projects are all about using these systems to empower music from my home region and that's the work that I sort of classify as like you know cultural like what a cultural technologist does is figuring out ways of empowering cultures that you know often might have fallen through the cracks or might not be the first tech, might not be the first culture that the technology is applied to and really figuring out ways of empowering those cultures and traditions and then lastly i'm also a, a, a musician my music name is yaboy hanoi that is spelt y a b o i h a n o i you can follow me on all my social handles on twitter on tiktok on instagram so i i produce and compose music under the moniker of your boy Hanoi. And this is basically my music project that, you know, reimagines and challenges music and dance and art from Southeast Asia and especially from Thailand through, you know, my, my unique style of electronic music with a little bit of a, with a twist of tech, I like to say. So this project is all about think, reimagining Thai. For example, I've done projects where I've taken Thai dance and combined it with R&B and taken tuning systems from 
different instruments from, you know, central Thailand to southern Thailand and writing like bass music with some of these tuning systems. And I think a really important thing about the Yaboy Hanoi project is, you know, using music and music technology as a way to reimagine and challenge what modern culture can be in Southeast Asia, but at the same time being really respectful about our histories and traditions and doing it in a way that, you know, looks back at the past respects it but also looks forwards and you know challenges what the what the what the future can be and also reaching out to both the younger you know it's it's about connecting with like younger generations or you know my generation but also doing it in a way that you know if I played this to like some of the older, you know, more that some, some, some of the older folks or, and they listen to the music, if they like it too, I'm usually like extremely happy where it's like, Oh yes, I've been able to like cross these different, these different generations, you know, both the younger generation and the older generation with the art and music that I'm making. So yeah, that's the, that's the, your boy Hanoi that. project. When things can be intergenerational like that. God, there's so much that you touched on that, it, that is really fascinating there. I mean, I love the term cultural technologist. That's a really, Really useful kind of framework for thinking through things. We also, of course, are huge fans of DDSP and a lot of the, you know, papers that you've written, a lot of the technology that you've put out there. So yeah, it's really awesome to have you here to talk through some of this. Yeah, where to start? We have a lot to talk about. (laughs) I think for starters, because we also want to talk about your entry in the AI song contest, which is... We will get there. We'll get there. But I think for, for starters, one thing that could be useful, I mean, you you touched on DDSP just a little bit, but these these ideas of using machine learning systems to run timbre transfers or whatnot. Would you mind maybe explaining to like someone who's coming at this really cold, what that really looks like in practice, what that means? Yeah. So the way I like to think about this is that, you know, technology and music have have always gone hand in hand. And DDSP is just, you know, the most recent technological advancement that we can apply to empower musicians to make sounds that they've never made before. So a good example of this is like back in the day when we were still like cave people, you know, we drilled holes in like little, little bones and we made flutes and that enabled humans to make sounds that they couldn't make before just with their own voices. And then, you know, then we figured out how to use wood and then we, you know, we made ships and we built houses with wood, but then we also invented instruments made from wood and that, you know, expanded the, the, the palette of sounds and the vocabulary of sounds that was available to humankind to make music. And then we figured out how to bend metal and then we made, you know, brass instruments. And then we did the same with electric circuits and we made like electric guitars and we made, you know, we had electronics and then we made synthesizers and then we made laptops and then we made, uh, you know, digital work, audio workstations. And in each of these steps, these technologies have, you know, broadened our ability to sculpt sounds and make sounds that have never been made before. And so DDSP is basically fusing the best of machine learning and the best of a field known as digital signal processing and taking the best of both worlds and putting those together to allow us to model the sounds of musical instruments in very, very efficient ways and very, very expressive ways. So if you have data, let's say, from an instrument like the violin or you know an instrument like the saw from Thailand, you can train a machine learning model to to extract all of the 
core characteristics of what makes the violin the violin and what makes the saul sound like a saul and then what you can do is once the machine learning model has figured out you know if you're playing this instrument at this note and it's this loud it should sound like this but then if you play if you put you know if you do a glissando down to this note the violin will sound like this but the saul will sound like this once it's finished its training process then what you can do is you can provide different a completely different input so let's say yourself singing or someone playing guitar but you can ask a machine learning model to re-render that input into the sound of whatever instrument it was trained on. So if you sang, you know, la 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 la, then you would get the violin going. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, this is fun. you can try it out on on some of these, you know, on using more for on tone transfer. But take my word for it. And yeah, and the reason that that's really exciting is because you know this is very different from a sampler because if you're if you're sampling an instrument, you have discrete notes. So you know the violin plays a note C, the violin plays a note D. But if you do something like, uh, there's no way a sampler can follow that. But if you if you gave DDSP you, yourself going like, oh, uh, you know, I do that all the time when I make music. <laughs> by the way, now. Um, the DDSP will actually exactly follow those contours, and it will generate, you know, a violin or an er, or a, a saul literally going like and following all the pitch contours, and you know, creating something really magical. You can do this with like animal sounds, so you can do this with birds, for example. So on tone transfer, there's an example where you know we we gave it like zebra finches, and then you can literally get a zebra finch playing a saxophone, and then also on TikTok, this is now integrated as a voice effect and. And, you know, people have been giving it like cows and like dogs barking and then rendering those into musical instruments, which has been absolutely hilarious to watch. So, yeah. So th those are the new, you know, the new ways of synthesizing sound that, that were just not possible using technologies from before. This is this is a really great description. Thank you so much for that. I've often had these kind of conversations on Twitter where I was remembering you know, like Ooh. a famous argument with someone being like, my sampler from 1983 yeah. could do that. And I'm like, and no. like, no, it really can't. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of important that you understand the difference here. But this also touches on some of the things you're talking about as a cultural technologist, how, you know, some of the kind of sounds from one culture could be able to be mapped onto the sounds of another culture, not having to be tied yes. to a specific tuning system. Totally. And also just when you're doing the aua, 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 like... <laughs> In honesty, it also gets us closer. This is one thing I think is really cool about it is if you look at like sampling technology as being somewhat of like a intermediary phase, like when people want to make music, when most people want to make music, I mean, we definitely do this. Like my phone's notes, audio notes is full of sketched ideas because in actuality, the idea of singing something or just playing something with an instrument that you're familiar with is so much more of a direct way of putting down ideas than, you know, MIDI. Than programming totally. MIDI, right? <laughs> I call it like MIDI Tetris or whatever, where you're like, oh, I've got this on my phone that I, oh, I know, I've got that. this thing on my phone that I sang, you know, in the shower because or like in bed because I had an idea, and now I've got to go into Ableton and try and move around a bunch of very very complicated uh, parameters that pro usually takes like a while to try and reenact the expressivity of the thing that I just sang. And right? not only does it grid the pitches to whatever kind of tuning system your MIDI is kind of operating with, but it also tunes the rhythm. So you're usually being snapped to some sort of like very regular grid. So it takes out a lot of the like freeform expressivity in, in music making. <laughs> Not a question, sorry. <laughs> so there was one, there was one point that you, you, you brought up there too, which is, so, so, you know, not only is input such, such a problem, you know, especially with tuning systems. And this is something that Khayam Alami also talks a lot about too. 
Yeah, he's, you know, he's, we, we, there was this project that he led called Common Tonalities, which was done with Nusasonic and the Goethe Institute. And I, I learned so much about these tuning systems and how to combine them with technology from those workshops that he, that he taught. And so, you know, there was an example, Holly, where you said, you know, taking the, the the sounds of one tradition and mapping it to the other, which is, that is precisely hitting the nail on the head on why I think these technologies are exciting. I know DDSP is very exciting to many different peoples in different ways, but for me, the most exciting thing about it is that you can do that mapping now, and this is something that I, I sort of put in quotation marks that, that I like to coin as like transcultural. You have transcultural music technologies, transcultural machine learning, and using a technology like this, you you can have this transcultural conversation between different musical traditions. So if you have, you know, in Thai classical music, if you have a specific trill between three notes that like are a quarter tone apart, for example, which like never happens in, let's say some of the, you know, never happens in, in, you know, Austro-Germanic classical music, let's say you can take literally that trill and then have it re-rendered as like a saxophone or as a Cambodian instrument or as a Indonesian instrument. And you can map these like cultural inflections much like you would map you know the tones of a language like onto another timbre and like completely respect all of the cultural and tonal inflections in a way that was just not possible and especially if you're using midi you know or any kind of gridded system you, you would just lose all of that fidelity immediately oh no i really want to hear that trill <laughs> no it, it, it's true i mean the other thing i really appreciate about this approach to you know there's very discreet I wouldn't. I think they're kind of melding together a little bit, but traditionally there's been very discrete camps within machine learning and music stuff where, you know, when most people hear it and the kind of what, colloquially when most people hear about AI and art generally, there's this kind of idea of automation, right? It's this idea of we want to build the perfect composition engine that, you know, that, that means that it will be so easy to just press a button and, and or like, you know, uh, give, give it a prompt and then you'll be able to generate an album or something. And I, what I really appreciate it with... Magenta's focus with with uh, DDSP and where you're taking it at this point in time is actually it's kind of respecting the the musical cultural tradition like period in the sense that like it's framing it's it's thinking of ways to apply these tools to the way people make music right like it's not trying to displace anybody it's it's just trying to augment our capacity to do way more wild stuff with with the tools that we use and and I think that goes that goes under the radar a little bit because that's a component of what we get so excited about with the ML stuff that is that still feels like a marginal position. It still feels like an aha moment for people. Yeah. To add on to that, you know, when when people ask me these in like interviews and and during you know talks and things like that, there is definitely ML systems that allow you to compose and automate the, the act of composition. But the technologies that I work on and the technologies that I'm most excited about is are the ones that allow you to make like make music in ways that were not possible before. Basically, I, I, I asked the rhetorical question, the elect, did the electric guitar replace the guitarist? Yeah. And the answer is like, no, because the electric guitar just expanded the vocabulary of guitarists. It allowed guitarists to invent a whole new genre of music, which is like rock and roll and metal and, and all of this. And if it wasn't for that invention, you wouldn't have that genre of music, right? I'm so excited for all the weird new genres that are going to come out of this. Yeah, totally. <laughs> No, you're totally right. That's also, it's also kind of a fun thing too, where you know, 
it's funny because the electric guitar itself gets kind of overlooked, I guess, because you then have electronic music and obviously rock music in some ways was kind of positioned for the longest period of time as being somehow more traditional than the electronic component, which just kind of ran with the electronics. But yeah, you're totally right. Like with metal, like palm chugging, (laughs) palm chugging is like, is a fairly like benign, quiet thing when you're talking about acoustics, but palm chugging is like this, it's electronic music. It really is. I, I hadn't actually made that connection before. You love a good palm chug. I mean, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm the Michigan okay. fan, but yeah, the, the, you're totally right. Like uh, palm chugging is electronic music, and and the electric guitar I somehow don't think about that much. So so I I might sound as a noob here, but what is palm chugging kind of like, exactly? Uh, you know, like if you listen to a metal track, you would restrict the movement of the strings a little bit with your palm, and then you would pluck. You would pluck usually on kind of one note, and it's, oh. it's like a, you know this kind of like it's almost okay. like a drum, like a drum beat or yeah, like a yeah. chug kind it's, of. Yeah, it's just very very rhythmic, but also where there's a lot of like corollaries, I think, between like metal music and things like dubstep too. Also mm-hmm. in that context, where it's just like then you get the blast, you get <laughs> this like chug of like this slab of noise that happens, and that that's usually yeah like a, a chug. No, why not? <laughs> so from DDSP. You then you also mentioned morph, so can we yes. dig into we've we've already understood what the capacity of this stuff is. What you know? What, let's let's dive into morph a little bit. Yeah, so morph is a plugin that was developed by the speech audio music intelligence team within TikTok R and D, and that's the team that I'm part of. And uh, yeah, we're really we you know we we launched it in in April, and it's been really really exciting to see all of the responses to it. We've seen some very very cool music that people have written using using morph and Music Radar put us in one of their you know the the roundup of the best free music production software for May 2020. So Music Radar, thanks for the shout out. And we're, yeah, we've just been really, really excited to to see what people have been doing. And, you know, f- that's from the artistic perspective, from the technical perspective, you know, we were able to basically get this technology running inside of a DAW on a consumer laptop and Morph, unlike some of the previous uh, projects that I worked on, like Tone Transfer, Morph actually synthesizes audio at 48 kilohertz. So this is, you know, so so it's now on par with all the other, you know, soft synths that professional musicians would be useful, that would be using. And, uh, you know, so you, when you get those breath sounds from blown instruments or you get those like friction noises, it, 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 it just just much higher fidelity and a lot more expressive latency like so the latency on this is there there is there is some latency that's introduced by the system unfortunately i can't go into the exact details of of what the latency is but there's a bunch of processing that does go on that you know what we we do have to deal with latency yes there's 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 a little bit but we you know tried to way and you don't really palpably feel it it's like there's some compensation Okay. So, so, yes. So you can use it and perform live with it. Of course, getting the latency down for some of these systems is is a little bit hard. Hold on. I'm, I'm, just give me a second on how much I can say. I don't think I can reveal exactly like the inners. So I, I definitely can't reveal the inners of how it works. So. Yeah, yeah. I can basically say that basically, you know, each of these, each of the systems that we're using to analyze the audio and synthesize the audio does, you know, does incur like some latency, but you can definitely perform live with the morph. Yeah, we're definitely, we're definitely used to latency. There's uh, with some of like Holly's vocal chain, she's actually actually singing in advance. I trained myself to sing like a quarter beat 
early <clears throat> because of my effects trains. And then yeah. like, we had to play, you know, we had the opportunity to play again recently in Singapore. So I have to cough. And I had forgotten how to, how like insane that <laughs> that training is. Oh. You're, I'm not singing right. on the beat. I'm singing like a chord. And it's not even really like actually like a chord. You know, it's like <laughs> a, some like very weird uh, interval of time where I'm just like, kind of like leaning into it early but yeah there's kind of like funny workarounds as a performer yes <laughs> it's like you either fix a system or you just fix the performer <laughs> yeah, exactly. and hopefully both kind of eventually converge but so okay so it's really interesting you went from magenta in silicon valley to now tiktok in shanghai and you know without getting too deep into the weeds of it i wonder if we could talk a little bit about some of the just like cultural differences between working in the tech world in Silicon Valley and working in the tech world in, in Shanghai. And of course, you're, you've only been there for a couple months, so this is probably fairly new. But if you have any interesting insights there. Yeah. So I think one of the things that has really stood out to me is, is so, so, so it's actually related. The example that I want to give is the relationship between, you know, the, the, the cultures in Southeast Asia and technology and how it relates to like technologies developed in the West and technologies developed in, for example, in China and the Asia Pacific. And a really good example about this, I have two really great examples. The first one is design for applications in China looks very different from UX design for applications in the West. So I have now been indoctrinated in all of the different you know, apps for ordering taxis and ordering food here. And the way that the way that these apps are designed is like they, they cram a lot of information into like the front page. Whereas in the West, they, you tend to make all these applications like very, very clean and very, very minimal. But then here, a lot of these applications, including in Southeast Asia, if you use Grab, for example, or Gojek, they, they actually cram cram all of these different options as like a super app. And and if you're if you're sort of looking at this from like a Western perspective, you know, working in tech there, you're, you'd probably be like, whoa, this is like way too much information. But it turns out, I remember from from a study that like this is in in, in Asia in cultures in the Asia Pacific, the users actually prefer to have all of this information there, essentially. Like they like having all of this information there. Whereas in the West, a lot of this information is sometimes, you know, they try to abstract it. Another really interesting thing is that English and languages that use, you know, an alphabet, for example, like Thai, if you have very complicated functions in a piece of software, it's really hard to put, you know, like render audio in like a very, very, you know, there's no space to put that if like you're on a phone or something. So what usually happens is people abstract that and they try to make an icon that looks like rendering audio. But then if you're using like Mandarin, what Mandarin does is because you have multiple meanings embedded in the character, you can actually take the full word for like rendering audio, for example, and then condense it to just two characters, for example. And so it's possible in, in like the Mandarin version, the Chinese version of all these applications to actually have the text there too. And to like kind of put these like two characters that like kind of arise the entire intention of rendering audio, which I, which is, you know, it, it's kind of obvious when you see it, but having come from, you know, developing technologies for the West and then now being exposed to more how technologies are developed for China and also the Asia Pacific region. That was something that really stuck out to me. Really fascinating. Of course, that makes so much sense because the alphabets are so different. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool, too, because on the one hand, you're saying it's like more difficult to say, like minimize. But then with Mandarin, it's actually more possible to minimize. Right. Because you can kind (laughs) of invent new new and for for things. That's really cool. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The the other example too is so recently I, I came so in China there's iQiyi which is a kind of like the Netflix of China. It's you can stream a lot of videos there, and I I literally read an article this February about their new dubbing system. So they have a new AI based dubbing system for their content, and what I was really surprised by was. They one of their supported languages was yeah, Thai, well, and and just to put this in context, Thai is a language. So it's my first language. It's the language that that I grew up speaking with my parents, and you know, because because I was born and raised there. And what's always happened is that having worked on AI systems, you know, and in, in in the Western tech world, Thai is usually not the first language that's supported in any AI system. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to do a translation system, it's going to be English, French, English, German, English, Chinese, you know, English to Spanish or something like that. No one ever does Thai. And even if you use a neural translation systems for Thai, they're still pretty bad. You know, as a Thai speaker, it, it's it's not very usable. Speech recognitions for Thai also so bad compared to, you know, speech recognition for English, speech recognition for other Western languages. And so when I saw this having like Thai as one of their language synthesis systems, I was honestly so surprised because I'm so used to not having Thai being supported. And all of a sudden you have like the Netflix of China essentially supporting Thai. And then it kind of made me think, it's like, why are they supporting Thai? And it was really, really good. You know, like it was able to get all the inflections that you would get from, uh, from a series. What was really interesting here was the dubbing system was great. Like it has all of the classic intonations of a Thai dub on like a Chinese movie or something like that. And I like I showed my parents and they were they were also like really impressed at how good it was. And I kind of thought like, why why would they do that? It's like I'm just so used to not having Thai be supported in these ML audio systems. And all of a sudden I, I hear this like really, really good Thai audio synthesis. And then it kind of hit me that it was like, oh, it's because of the cultural similarities of different countries in Southeast Asia and, you know, the greater Asia Pacific. But, you know, there's a, there's a very, very long history of overseas Chinese in Thailand, right? Like we have the largest Chinatown, like in the world, like if you thought LA Chinatown or New York Chinatown was big, wait till you come to Yawara, which is like the, the Thai Chinatown. We have a long history of Chinese, overseas Chinese in Thailand. I mean, I, I'm actually a good example of like, I'm, you know, my, my grandparents, my great grandparents are actually from China, but I was born and raised. My parents were born and raised in Thailand. So I consider myself to be Thai, but you know, by blood, I have Chinese heritage. And so what that means is that there are a lot of Thai people watching Chinese dramas. Like there's a huge demand of Chinese content in Thailand. And it, it totally makes sense because when I was growing up, my, my grandparents would watch Chinese dramas, you know, on Thai television, right? Like that's, that's what gets broadcasted on national TV. And so it totally makes sense that the Netflix of China, if they were, you know, if they were figuring out how to increase like engagement in terms of consumer demand, Thai would be one of the languages that they would support outside of like Mandarin and English, for example. Like they wouldn't support Portuguese, right? right? Or they may not support German because actually they, they have this huge population in Thailand that would immediately start watching their content. And and that was just a that was a huge moment for me, actually, because it it, it, that, that was another example of how the dynamics of being in the Asia Pacific versus the dynamics of being in the West are because 
the concept of consumer demand completely changes now if you're dealing with the Asia Pacific. And because of the cultural similarities between Thailand and China, you have this you have this moment where the engineers literally decided to support Thai in a way that I've never seen been done in like applications that I've used in the West. So that's another really big example of like the differences between some of the differences that I've encountered between the two poles of the world, two two sides of the world. In the sense that it also goes both ways, right? I'd imagine. I'd imagine that because when you're talking about like kind of hegemonic cultural influence or something like this, like in a previous scenario, a lot of that has to do with like market size, right? Like, for example, the United States mm. has this massive market. So if you if you run like a big television company, you know, the United States exports, it has this massive market. English is, of course, spoken all over the world. But what we're seeing, what, what you're describing to me also suggests that a Thai television production could also now be be legible to the Chinese market use, using the same kind of principle, right? That you can trans, you can translate yes. from, which is, again, I'd, I'd say kind of a really interesting kind of very positive case for using some of these ML techniques, right? This idea that through being able to trans translate culturally, this cultural translation process, all of a sudden it does like where you are doesn't necessarily limit who you can reach. And we've seen that a little bit, right? Like even over over the pandemic and kind of with Netflix and Spotify, you could make one strong argument for them where through dubbing, I have noticed like German shows, Swedish shows being presented in an American context, which is kind of new. I mean, that was a real outlier case before. Brazilian shows. They needed more content. So they were well, like, yeah. okay, fine. We'll, we'll look outside of ourselves. Well, well, well absolutely. <laughs> I do think the pandemic did kind of contribute to that. But this greater point of saying, okay, well, you know, what if what if translation through speech or whatever wasn't an issue anymore? Would we be in a better situation or would that be a a worse situation? And quite clearly to me, it reads as a much better situation for people outside of these major, you know, these kind of like hulking cultural centers. There is is the Nordic argument that, you know, they, they always say that because their TVs are, so in Germany, most TV is dubbed and from the other European languages for like, usually like EU wide content, but in the Nordic countries, usually they leave it in, original and they say that it fosters better language skills <laughs> just throwing that out there you know, what, what were you gonna say okay. <laughs> yeah it's it's and i you know you were talking too about reaching you know re- reaching out to audiences that that you you couldn't do before and that's actually one of the most exciting things for me thinking about you know low resource languages or low resource, I would say low resource cultures, because, you know, Thai is a low resource language, but it's musically, we're also a low resource, like musical culture and that we don't have a lot of data on on our music. And so what, what this got me thinking too, is the fact that some of these cultural similarities, I think, can also seep into the way that we train machine learning models. So, so for example, like I'm learning Mandarin right now, very, very, you know, my, now that I'm here. And this has been a very interesting process because Thai and Mandarin are actually really similar. And I'm kind of at an unfair disadvantage learning Mandarin coming from Thai because Thai is a tonal language. It kind of got me thinking. It's like, well, if Thai speech recognition is not that great... I'm pretty sure that if we did transfer learning and just froze all of the phonetic embeddings from like a really good Chinese speech recognition model, I am pretty sure that that transfer learning will yield like a higher accuracy 
on Thai than like doing the same thing with like English would just because of the just because of the linguistic similarities between our two languages. And I think that I think that, you know, we we talk a lot about, you know, how do we how do we get technologies working for low resource languages? But I, I really think there's like something exciting there for for that Southeast Asia can take advantage of in terms of the cultural proximity that we have with languages like Mandarin and how we can take advantage of those in like the machine learning and data sparsity kind of situation. Which brings me to, to another thing I'd love to discuss with you, uh, scenario is like, one, we've just kind of covered this idea of saying, you know, how do we create greater translation between cultures through using these technologies, whether that be through timbre transfer or let's say dubbing. And then the other part of your statement was about respect, right? Hmm. And I wonder, I think, I think that's, yeah. that's a really interesting thing to dive into a little bit. I mean, we've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking, for example, about I would argue like a pretty immature ethical conversation about training data just generally. I certainly, through following your work for a number of years now, wouldn't put you in that camp. But more broadly speaking, I think that there's a that there's kind of like that's a conversation that that is yet to be had really fully. And I wonder how you mm. you approach this stuff because obviously when you're talking about you know representing aspects of Southeast Asian culture, representing aspects of, of Thai culture, you know what are the parameters to be able to do and an experiment with such things in a in a respectful manner? I wonder. Yeah, it's a really, really great question. And it's something that is so important to, to my work. And it's something that I, I think about all the time, whether I'm working on the music, whether I'm working on the technology, whether I'm working on the data. And the way I like to, to think about this is to think back to a, a, an, like a, like a pers- personal experience that I had working on my first project ever that was going in this direction. So in 2015, I, I did a gap year after I graduated. And I, during that gap year, I had some funding to basically learn how to build traditional musical instruments with luthiers across Southeast Asia. And it's the experience that I had with these luthiers that really informed all the aesthetics that I have today and informed all the aesthetics that I push for in the machine learning work that I do, in the music work that I do. And it comes down to this, this uh, interaction that I had, which was when I, when I had the idea of combining 3D printing with woodworking and making all of these instruments, I wanted, it was very important to me that this musical instrument, if someone that was 18 or like 25 looked at it, they would be like, wow, I never thought traditional instruments could be so cool. And that was like the first thing that I wanted to get this idea of, you know, using technology to change the way that people perceive culture. And I I wanted it just to be domestic first. So I didn't I wasn't thinking so much about what other countries thought. I was like, I just need Thai people to look at Thai instruments differently. And so I was able I was able to do that. And then I, the ultimate test I I remember telling myself is that I need to bring these musical instruments that I've made back to my teachers and I need to show it to professional musicians who are masters of these instruments to get their, to get their opinion. And I told myself that if they reject this idea, I probably need to go back to the drawing board somewhere because yeah. And I told myself like something is wrong with my vision if I am unable to connect with the masters of the culture, essentially. And what I was what I was thinking about that time was that, you know, my my luthier told me he said that 
it's so weird to see you here learning this from me because no one wants to learn how to build traditional musical instruments from Thailand. And here you are like so excited to do so, you know, and when his friends would come, they would ask like, who's this, like, who's this guy like learning instruments for you? Like, this is so weird. Like, where is he from? You know? And he would be like, Oh yeah. Like, like, you know, he's, you know, he's, studied physics and music and he's like really interested in the acoustics of these instruments they're like oh wow that's really weird <laughs> but you know that, that's the reality is that people aren't in, you know these local these local classical cultures are, are slowly dying out and so it was really important to me that if 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 my goal is to use technology to reimagine and sort of you know put this culture in the context of the future right and reimagine what the future can mean it also has to be able to speak to the masters of this culture. It has to be able to be compatible with what my luthier is doing. Like whatever I invent, my luthier teacher needs to be able to understand it and connect what he's doing to my system. If I come up with something that's completely incompatible with what he does, I have essentially failed as like a technologist because I've completely cut off all of these people who live and breathe these traditions from these technologies. So that was like a huge thing for me. And I was honestly really nervous. Uh, like, cause basically they were like, you have destroyed our culture. You know, like if, if I, that scene from star Wars where it's like, you know, it's like, you know, you've taken, you've taken the force, but you've like completely gone to the dark side or something like that. I, I was honestly like really worried that that would be the, uh, the reaction, but I was also ready that if that was the case, I, I needed to be honest with myself and I would need to rethink the design. And so what happened during those interactions, I'm happy to say that when I, when I sort of brought this project on tour and I showed it to professional luthiers, including my own teacher, as well as professional musicians of these, these instruments, they were really, really excited. <laughs> they were like, you know, I had comments like, you know, I had a teacher who came up to me when I was showing at a maker fair in Chiang Mai in the north of Thailand. He said, I brought my students to your booth and my students have never cared about traditional instruments from Thailand. But the minute that you started talking about 3D printing and you showed how you can, you know, completely change the sound of Thai instruments with 3D printing, all the kids were like super excited. Had a, my, my, one of the professional musicians said that, you know, this would allow them to basically care, you know, they'd be able to mix and match different components from different countries and, you know, be able to create these cross-cultural, these transcultural sounds that were not possible before. And he was excited that it's like, I don't need to like carry like 10 different instruments. I just like bring like a DSLR and just change the lenses. And then my luthier teacher said that there was one thing that he said that really struck me. He said, you know, in a thousand years, we might not have wood and coconuts as a natural resource to build musical instruments. And he said, what your system has essentially done is it's allowed us to rethink what these musical instruments will mean in a world where we no longer have natural resources and everything is synthetic. Wow. And that like, that gave me goosebumps, essentially, because I didn't <laughs> far away. And so, and it was so funny because I was also explaining to him like 3D printing and I was like, you know, trying to explain like, yeah, there's like this nozzle and it like, you know, prints this stuff. And he was like, you know, like knocking on the, the 3D printed instrument. He was like, oh, this, this is like very interesting. But what, but, and, and through that experience, I, I realized that, okay, this idea totally, it, you know, it, it jives with these owners of the culture, you know, these people who live and breathe this culture and have taught me what they know and through, through my apprenticeship. And I think I was able to do that, you know, obviously it was because I knew how to build these instruments and I literally apprenticed with a luthier. So I knew exactly how a luthier worked and I made sure that everything would be backwards compatible with like a luthier's workshop. So I think that was really important. And so this experience basically told me that there is a way 
of designing technology in a way that's exciting for younger generations in a way that also connects with owners of the culture and empowers them to, you know, make musical instruments when there are no longer natural materials and we have to, you know, only use synthetic materials, but to also like create a completely new technology, right? So, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the systems that I developed, like I, you know, I applied for like patents and things like that for that too. And it's like a, a technological advancement in itself. This is a system that if you were trying to do this with musical instruments from other parts of the world would actually not be possible just because of the way that these instruments were built and historically how people moved around different regions and brought these different luthier crafts to, to these different parts of the world. So it, it was really exciting for me because I was like, wait, there is a way of like reimagining culture, doing it in a way that's exciting for young people, doing it in a way that respects the people that are masters of the culture and have taught me everything that I know. But it's also possible to like push technology forward, like to invent something completely new. And then once I applied to, you know, a range of design competitions and, you know, and ended up winning two awards, the Core 77 Design Award and also the A Prime Design Award in the category of musical instruments, that was sort of like, okay, domestically, people get this and internationally people get this too. Like this, this not only speaks to my own communities and the people that I, that I grew up alongside with, it actually speaks to people outside of Thailand. It speaks to people from all around the world. And so that was the moment where I realized, okay, this aesthetic works and that this is an aesthetic that I should follow and keep very, very close to my heart whenever I work on a technology that is meant to empower culture. Like I, I always return to this feeling that I had with the Luthiers, where if I build a technology, if it's an AI, if it's a machine learning system, if it's a real-time you know, sound transfer system, if I show it to you know, these different people, it should feel like that moment that I had back in 2015 with some of these Luthiers. That's really fascinating. Thanks so much for sharing that. We'll also be sure to link to that project in the show notes because I'm familiar with that project already. And you kind of almost have to see yeah, the objects it. because I you're using d different materials. The kind of pieces of the instruments are interchangeable in some ways. It's really fascinating. You almost have to see them because yeah. they're, I mean, they're really like art objects. I really <laughs> want one. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Matt, Matt's like low-key obsessed with them. But there's so, there's so much to dig into. You know, there's like this archival and preservation component component there that you touched on a little bit with like, you know, some of the materials not being available in the future. It's really interesting. Of course, the, cran the transcultural component. I wonder just to like poke a little bit, if you're ever concerned about a kind of, how do I want to put this? If, if an instrument, you know, different instruments obviously have different meanings in different cultures. I wonder if you ever worry about a kind of decontextualization in a negative way where some, you know, a sound that is usually kind of used or a, a timbre or a, a or even a, an instrument is used in a specific kind of context is is then able to be kind of decontextualized. And, you know, we saw that a lot with with sampling culture. I wonder how you feel about that with kind of timbre transfer. Does that question make sense? Yes, it does. And it's, it's a question that, you know, it, it's, it's a question that I, that I think a lot about too. And there's actually, you know, a, a, an aside in thinking about some of these answers, I, I really, really love the work that both of you are doing with, you know, the ideas on spawning and thinking about ways of like how to reuse your voice and what are the, what are the ways that the communities can participate to decide on what is, you know, the, the respectful use of, of, of your, of someone's voice, such as your own in music. And it's really, really 
really inspiring. Like I, I, it's it. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Back, back, back to back to that. So, so there was a there was a really really great. So you know, if you have a musical instrument that's used only for you know funerals or something like that, you, you do not want to make like an EDM lead with, with that, right? It would be very disrespectful to again, you know, again, if if this was a luthier and I and I went back to them and I showed them, you know, this EDM banger that uses like this this lead that's only supposed to be used in very solemn situations. I'm pretty sure the luthier would be no. This is you know this this this. Can you hear me? Sorry, Holly just got a random phone call. It's we're both getting spammed by this. Oh. Yeah, there's like a scam going around, and they keep calling us both all the time. So sorry about that. No worries. And so I would be very very worried, right? If if that if that was how the technology was uh, was being used. So when we were developing tone transfer, right? One of the things that although I had de- although we actually had trained models on a variety of other musical instruments such as musical instruments from China and from from India, we decided not to release them into tone transfer because we were honestly, you know, the team, the UX team, myself and the Magenta folks, we were very worried that if people were coming into touch with these cultures for the yeah. first time and they happen to give something that just didn't sound great with that instrument and then they end up going okay this sounds bad we were worried that this is actually probably not the best first impression that we want to give mm-hmm. on on the musical culture and because tone transfer was being marked was being targeted for the western audience we decided that that was really critical to 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 to, to not have that kind of cultural miscommunication mm-hmm. so we decided not to do that but then we had another project called Sounds of India. And in this case, this was to celebrate India's Independence Day. And, you know, the 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 the, the project was being, you know, tele, not televised, but it was being shared with the community via Prasar Bharti. I might not be pronouncing that correctly, but it's kind of like the NPR of, of India. And we knew that in that case, this the cultural context of this is to celebrate culture, it's to celebrate this very important day, and that it would be the main users of this would be from India singing the national anthem and having it transformed to these music, different musical instruments. So in that case, the cultural context of it completely makes sense because everyone that's going to be interacting with this in India knows what a bansuri is, which is an Indian flute. They know what a uh, they know what these instruments sound like, and so we felt very comfortable putting these uh, these instruments in that kind of context. And, you know, a lot of these aesthetics, you know, continue to inform the work that I do here. So when, yeah, so, so when we release these, uh, these instruments, we think, we think a lot about like the, you know, the, the cultural context of, of who is experiencing, who is the main audience experiencing this and what is their relationship with the culture to try to minimize some of these cultural misunderstandings and miscommunications that could yeah, happen. Totally. I, I thought the Sounds of India project was done really beautifully and delicately. And it's funny because, yeah, I mean, speaking to some of the stuff that Holly and I've been doing. In some ways, it's not an easier problem, but it's a different problem when you're talking about, let's say, IP that is that belongs to an individual, like someone's voice, right? When when you start yeah. talking about instruments that have a deep cultural tradition, but are ultimately not really owned by anyone in particular, right? It's like a different challenge, and and I and I thought that with the Sounds of India project, you all did a really really good job. I wonder, it's like, you know. This is now getting into completely speculative territory, but there's been kind of a long-standing. We discussed this a little bit with Kiam, not specifically this example, but you know, 
a history in many in many ways I would say like an attempt at a celebratory history from the late 20th century forward let's say with the advent of sampling where you know you can get VST libraries of you know group singers from different parts of the world or particular instruments but in a way that you know oftentimes the practice there would be something along the lines of like you know, German company would send a recordist to Bahrain to to record a bunch of drummers, and then those recordings, someone would get paid. Someone would get paid to do the session, and then you know that library would then go on to to exist as a sample pack that people could buy. And in a way, you know, there's there are varying degrees of exoticism that have been introduced. I've seen some things done yeah. delicately. I've seen some things done heinously. There's some pretty unholy dance music from yes, the 90s. Yes, I know. <laughs> What's kind of interesting about, about the machine learning model in a way, you know, our caution in some senses, which maybe sounds hyperbolic, but I think it but I think it's somewhat true, is that, you know, the lessons from the sampling era kind of need to be learned before we really start getting going yes. on this because you don't want to create, let's say, a paperclip machine for all of the mistakes we made in the late 20th century. And one wonders if, you know, if there's a way of tying these models together with some kind of community organization or something where, let's say, some of the money or profits generated from the Bansura or whatever would in some ways also benefit, you know, some kind of a, a cultural organization or someone whose explicit focus is is the maintenance yeah. of traditional Indian, Indian music. And I wonder, I feel yes. like your work specifically, some of the work that Kiam's been doing, it really does augur a future in which that could happen. And I wonder I wonder how you feel about those kind of relationships. Because in, in essence, you could kind of cut out the middle entity. You could kind of cut out, sorry, sorry, this random German company I'm inventing in my head who like <laughs> is making lots of money from selling sample packs. But, but there's, a, there's a scenario in which these models could just directly impact the traditions or, or, or benefit the traditions in which they were trained. Yeah, it's a, it's a really great question. The, before I answer that, there was one thing that you were talking about in terms of the sampling that I just wanted to, to add, which is when, when, when we were working on tone transfer, one of my colleagues, Nita Zada, and I were talking a lot about like machine learning models as artifacts of culture. So much in the same way that you would treat with respect an artifact of culture, it could be a national dress or, or you know, a, a very important, you know, porcelain sculpture that, that every family has, you know, mean, you know, that, that has a cultural meaning in the same way that you would treat that with, with respect, you should be treating machine learning models trained on this data as such too. It, it is an artifact of culture. It, it's a living and breathing model of, you know, that distills the essence of that culture, whether it's generating an image. So, so yes, you know, the lessons that we have from sampling is we don't want to have, you know, 21st century AI powered cultural appropriation being done at, at, you know, the scale of which AI can, can, can be done. I think what's key too is is not just empowering those who are aware of these structural issues. So I think a lot of musicians who are really embracing the web three space, they are aware of these of these structural forces that are working against them. When I think about like Lunke Chaikam, I also think about people who are like unaware of these structural forces. And how do you design a system that would easily just in you know Again, I always go back to the fiddle project because it could just, it, I, whenever I'm in like in doubt of like, 
how should I resolve this? I'm just like, just think back to the fiddle project. Just like think back to your time with Lunke. And it's just basically for me, it's this system would need to work with Lunke. And Lunke is unaware of all of these technological changes that are coming, right? He's never seen a 3D printer. And we had a long, I, I was like showing him like videos of a 3D printer. But when I showed him how the 3D printed piece would connect with his the wooden shaft that he had made that taught me how to make. And then his eyes sort of like lit up. It's like, Oh wait, our systems are cross compatible. Like I don't need to change anything. Like, I just keep doing what I'm doing. I just need to add this extra little connector to the end of my wooden rod. And then it like actually connects with your system. That's like a huge I think a huge bridge that needs to be covered where whatever system gets invented, if I brought to Lunke and be like, okay, just set up this, you know, that little banking app that you already use, just enable this one little feature. And now you're like connected to this entirely new world. That's something that also I feel is really important is to empower those who kind of aren't even aware of the structural forces well, that's the thing, at yeah, play. If people are if people are bringing value, then they ought to be compensated, and they and they need not necessarily like you know develop develop a crazy awareness of of the the next bleeding edge thing in order to qualify. It shouldn't, yeah. be, it shouldn't be burdensome for them. No, not at all. And I mean, I I, I think. The, yes. the one thing I think is interesting about the idea is ultimately, you know, one of the things we've we've looked at a little bit, and actually I'd love to have someone on the podcast, I've, talk, I've said for like a while, I'd love to have someone on the podcast about this, I need to just identify who the right person is, is there is some precedent largely within indigenous communities actually where you have, let's say, a pattern that is owned by by a group. The famous example mm. was the Navajo print thong that Urban Outfitters released because you can't legally do that. I mean, not only was it really disrespectful, but it's also illegal for them to do that. Exactly. And then in some countries yeah. like yeah. Canada and Australia, you have things called protocols, which is quite relevant, obviously, when we're talking about Web3, where oftentimes there is like an elected council that in this case, the difference, yeah. there's a slight difference because in this case, you're talking about commonly or communally owned and governed IP where they kind of express or they have the right to deny the usage of something. So you kind of have to petition them with the yeah. idea being that yeah. if Urban Outfitters does a Navajo print, whatever, and they get approval, you know, a portion of those profits will go to that group. And so the idea is that rather than it benefiting one individual, let's say, it would be stewarded by a group of elected individuals who would then distribute the funds locally, right? And so I think I think there's there's something there in the sense of when you're talking about traditional instruments, like, you know, how, how wide do you, how wide do you cast the net? Like how far, like, because of yeah. course, but, but on, but the good thing about it in a way is that when you cast the net pretty wide, as we both know, and maybe is new to, to some listeners, but you know, the machine learning models really like lots of training data, right? So you could, you know, you can maybe record an instrument with for a couple of hours and get a pretty good, a pretty good representation of that. But the idea is, there's probably a ceiling to this, but the idea is that the more you'd be able to capture, the wider the net you would, ca you would cast, you know, the better the model, the more flexible the model ultimately, right? Because we've got to also prepare ourselves probably for a scenario where in the not too distant future, it will make a difference, you know, what a dry flute and a wet flute sounds like. It'll make a difference what it sounds like on a played by a child or played by a rather large man, right? Like, like the, there's so much room for diversity in terms of the output eventually that 
that yeah, I think think seeing these things that, that where I think it's 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 interesting discussion is is seeing it like located, let's say, to one individual who trained that particular model, or or maybe it's both. Looking at it as kind of like a a, a, a commonly owned piece of piece of piece of culture that ought to where the funds ought to be distributed to you know to a group that let's say starts a music school or starts a luthier school or something like this that like keeps keeps the the, the traditional lives so but 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 in terms of like in terms of the the principle we're totally on the same page i think that like the on principle the idea that people ought to be able to to benefit from the usage of of these cultural totems or whatever for want of a better term is is absolutely right and i think there's we have way more tools to to get that right yeah, yeah. It's, 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 that, that really makes me think about too, where, you know, if you have people who are sort of, what am I trying to say? What, what, I, what I'm trying to say is that one of the ways that we can respect culture and one of the ways that we can be aware of how to do things respectfully is, of course, to have, you know, an organization sort of vote and, and, you know, say like, yes, this is acceptable. This is this is not acceptable. I think that's one really important model of, of doing it. I think another important model, too, which I guess is less codified, but it's it's kind of just based on like what what feels right or what feels good, which is like this very like <laughs> ethereal, like, oh, I'll just do what feels right, you know, but I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to put it into more concrete terms by saying that in, in, in my, we, we, you know, f- f- when, when I think about technology or I think about how technology is going to change culture, culture at the end of the day, for me, I always say this, but like culture is meant to be eaten. It's meant to be sung. It's meant to be spoken and it's meant to be heard, right? It's, it's meant to be experienced at the end of the day. So if the experience of it, if you sing it or if you listen to it or if you eat it and it doesn't taste good or it doesn't sound good, for me, this is like my personal opinion, I don't really care what the technology was. I don't kind of care who who was kind of like doing it, all this. If it doesn't feel right in that moment, like something's kind of wrong with the process yeah. that came about. Much like if you ate the food and it just didn't taste right, you know, you, you'd be like, oh, what am I eating kind of thing. And this goes back again to, to that experience that I had with the Luthiers where in that moment, you know, everything just kind of clicked. And if it didn't click, I would have to reassess where, where I, where, where I was coming from. And I think that this, this idea of, you know, if, if it doesn't, if, if, yeah, if it's like food, you know, if it just doesn't taste right the first time, we essentially need to go back to the drawing board because at the end of the day, if you've, if someone has taken an ingredient from Thai food completely out of context, but their intent is to create something new, their intent is to create food that's never been created before. And they come up with a dish that uses, let's say like, I don't know, Thai fermented chili paste in a completely new way that Thai people have never thought of. They give it to Thai people. Thai people absolutely love it. And you give it to non-Thai people and they also love it too. That is the kind of, for me, that is the kind of cultural empowerment that we want to, that we want to strive for. And so in a technological sense, it's like, that's the feeling that we want to, that we want to empower. If that comes via organizations that say, that say like, okay, you can do this, you can't do this. I think that's like a very good way to go. But if we can also have ways, I don't know where it's like, 
again, this is why the whole DA, you know, decentralized autonomous organizations and what you've done has been very interesting for me because you have a community that's voting that on that. I thought that, that metaphor was really useful, like, actually. It was really clear. It also was kind of triggering me for all the times that I've misused Star Anise and it's gone like really horribly wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think you're totally, wait, wait, wait. totally right. And, and, and if I, if, if I, if I summarize through, through our lens a little bit, you know, I, I think we're totally in agreement. I mean, the, the Navajo idea is very much about, and for good reason, kind of uh, having the the power of veto over something. Where maybe where maybe yeah. you're at, and where I completely agree with what you're saying is that, let's say the Holly Plus approach is being like, look, you know, it's a permissive IP paradigm. Of course, everybody should feel free to make something. However, let's say if there were a council in place of Luke who had the ability to not necessarily approve, but like to acknowledge or to, to, to widen the cuisine, to use your analogy, and say, well, actually, this use of it is a pretty interesting kind of augmentation of the culture, right? And, and, I, and I, I personally prefer that approach in many cases, largely mm. because, I mean, yeah. what, what does culture mean, right? Culture literally is something that grows and develops. And it's a really fine line between, yes. you know, that can often be used to, to kind of whitewash conversations where it's like, Oh, well, culture just wants to be free and move around everywhere. And they're like, well, yeah, like it does, but there's still like a very important like point, right? There's a very important line context context that goes through history. And it's like, yes, like culture and information largely does desire to be, to be free and everyone should really feel free to experiment. But it's also kind of, it means a little bit more when a group of people who really know what they're talking about acknowledge this new thing as part of the yes. cuisine. And so the ability to do that, I think, is very beneficial for everyone involved. Well, it's like Italy adopting the tomato. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a whole... <laughs> exactly. I was trying to go back to the food. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Under, under, under known things, so, Julius Caesar had never seen a tomato. It's deep. It's sort of refined an idea that, that I had, which is, I think that these systems should enable the experimentation to happen first. And if the experimentation goes wrong to then say, okay, let's not like, you know, that caught on fire. Let's, let's put the fire out. A really good example of this was when I was back in Thailand, I, you know, was working for on the Yoboy Hanoi project, you know, taking some, a song that I'd remixed for a Jamaican artist named Dorsh. And my, my vision for this was to take this, it's like R and B, you know, like laid back house music. And I was like, I really want to put Thai dance mm-hmm. over this because I'm like, I'm sure it would work. And the problem that I came across was that, okay, so if I just went up to a traditional Thai dancer and said this, they would probably say no, because, you know, the, they, they wouldn't, they would, they would just not be comfortable with it. And without, and again, it's like talking about food. It's like, if I took star anise and I combine it with Thai chilies, it would, I, I'm going to make this. And without tasting it, it's impossible for us to actually make a judgment about what it is. I was very fortunate that I, I was put in touch with some very, very forward thinking, very, very incredible dance troupe called Kitboksip, who are trained in both traditional Thai dance. One of them actually teaches at a, you know, at a university in Thailand, but they're also trained in like modern dance and like, you know, more modern forms of dance so they were like we were you know our projects were literally just a match made in heaven and so we did the project and it turned out like it turned out very very well like we we ended up getting like 500,000 views and all of them were like Thai people in like the 15 to 25 age range and like this was so exciting for it because it's all traditional Thai dance but it's just kind of again like the fiddler kind of taking it take bring it into a new context and what was really interesting was that a lot of a lot of f- folks who are also trained in traditional Thai dance 
also really liked it. They were like, this is it. They said like, this is, this is a reimagination of Thai culture that respects our tradition, but also makes it exciting for the, the new, you know, as like new Thai culture. And that's an example of where I'm pretty sure that if we had like, if, if, if it was a system where we couldn't actually cook the food first and taste it, it could have actually been shot down earlier and said like, Nope, that's not going to work. You know, we don't do R and B with Thai dance. That's just not a thing, but we did it. And then we tasted it and we were like, wait, this actually works. And then we, and then we showed it to other people and they're like, yes, this is really cool. And you know, all the Thai people are like, this tastes great. I've never, I've never tasted Thai chilies, Thai roasted chilies in this context, but it tastes great. And then, you know, then, then, you know, kind of goes from there. So what I was trying to say here is that whatever system we build, I, I, I want to make sure that that system enables that experimentation to happen. But then if the experimentation goes wrong and it ends up offending someone or it ends up, you know, making someone happy, we have mechanisms in place to allow us to, you know, at that point to say, okay, this thing caught on fire, let's not eat it because it's all burnt. And that that to me, like just registers as kind of like the truth of culture, right? Is that, you know, the, the, the kind of caricature argument that could be made about being kind of being, let's say, overprotective of cultures would be that it would sty- it would stymie them, right? That the ultimately it would just kind of freeze them in time. And and at least in my experience, so long as you're you're approaching things conscientiously and respectfully, that's exactly the opposite of what any culture wants, right? Like people people are excited to encounter new ideas. There's just lines, and it's conversational and it's conditional. And so, yeah, you're totally right. Like. You're also going to always have disagreements on what's appropriate and what's experimental and what's not. Yes. And I think that one way to put your money yes. where your mouth is, is to literally put your money where your mouth is <laughs> and to pay people. I mean, you know, yes. even if somebody doesn't love the final expression, I'm not saying that we should do things that are disrespectful, but I think that that there will always be disagreements there. But if there's remuneration in place, I think that that helps. Exactly. So there's two tiers, right? So it's yeah. like you're open and permissive initially which means that everyone gets to experiment, right? To use your analogy, everyone gets to cook, right? If that meal, irrespective of whether it's good or not, if that meal ends up making a million dollars, then there ought to be some mechanism in place so that the people who created the ingredients should be compensated relative to that profit. And then there's this other side, which is there's a group of people in place who can say that meal was so good that now we kind of endorse it as part of the cuisine, you know? And so... All of yeah. those, all of yes. those elements there in my mind are like generative, respectful, fair, context specific, context specific. Yep. But of course, yep. a few of those pieces would need to be put together. But that, in my mind, is such a is such a refresher from, as I say, like the devil's advocate caricature position, which is, oh, you know, all you want to do is just stop people experimenting, or you know, and I'm like, no, 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 like far from it, actually. Like cultures need people to experiment in order to grow, right? Like what we consider to be, I mean, we were just in Singapore, which is kind of like an education in, in cultural hybridity or whatever, right? Like, Oh yeah. Singapore is a very, very interesting, a beautiful place to be looking yeah, into I mean, that. Yes. Wild place and talk about cuisines and it's like, well, yeah, the cuisine, you know, if you were to fix it at a particular point in time, you could look at, let's say an Indian cuisine and say, well, okay, well, Indian cuisine has these elements. It's like, well, that was developed over how many years? And I'm sure and there were all yeah. kind of these experiments that probably happened where someone came up with, you know, and, and, and I mean, I'm, I was 
I was born in in Birmingham, England, that has its own derivative Indian cuisine as a result of the diaspora being there so long, you know, and that's absolutely part of Indian yeah. culture now. It just is. So you you kind yeah. of have to factor that, but then but it's it's the real pain point is really about exactly remuneration and accreditation and having clear a clear line there so that these things don't don't kind of explode. These things don't just like bubble into a, into a, a weird mutant. And pe- <laughs> and people aren't left out. Yeah, you just don't want people to, and nobody feels good about that, yeah. you know. And and to be honest, I think personally, you know, you you've had the great experience of like meeting with the luthier and and seeing this as part of your practice. But my bet is that when given a bit of information and given the option to be able to participate in a fair and generative system like this, the vast vast majority of people will get a huge kick out of it. You know, like I don't think the vast majority of people like wake up in yeah. the morning and think I want to make something culturally disrespectful. There's like there's like a couple of people maybe who are edgy and, and like that stuff. But most people, I think they they would they would celebrate and, and probably love the idea of contributing to a system like that. Yeah, yeah. So that what you just said also kind of refined another idea, which I've also been kind of thinking about in my head. It's so fun talking with both of you. So the the, the first thing was was this idea that right, yeah. So so I think the comparison with food is is I think it's perfect for this. I, I love food for everything. I, I I give it to my music teacher when I was in high school in Thailand, Ajahn Donawit, who who basically just compared everything to food. Man, I remember I remember when I was like learning learning how to play classical piano, and and I would say like so. What is my role as a pianist if I'm just playing the same tune that this other person is playing, and we're both playing like the exact same Mozart tune? He was like, "So you know, if you have ever gone into like you know like like in Thailand, we have like you know like a pork stew." And he said, "The pork stew in that shop is very similar to the other shop, but where do they differentiate? They differentiate on the dipping sauce, right? So that shop will have like." a tamarind dipping sauce, which is like completely, you know, off the charts. But then this other place is like uses like a fermented chili paste and, you know, that's their own interpretation of this, of this thing. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. And then, you know, that's what I was like, okay, so if I'm playing like this piece, you know, from Austro Germanic classical music, I was like, what is my dipping sauce? That's, that's what, that's what my goal is to figure out. And so I love food analogies for, for music or like anything in life. The contested barbecue sauce debate in the American South. It's very regional and like very hyper-specific of like how much vinegar, sugar, the second point was that I think that, you know, so, so in the same way that food culture has evolved over time, right? Like it's food is constantly evolving and in the same way that culture is constantly evolving. So a really great example, you, you know, you brought up Indian food in Birmingham. So Pad Thai, right? The icon of Thai cuisine is actually from the overseas Chinese population uh, in Thailand. With the noodle emphasis right. or, yeah. Exactly. So noodles don't exist natively in Thai cuisine. They were brought by the Chinese population, right? And it's also stir-fried in a wok. And the wok and the stir-fry techniques are techniques that were brought by overseas Chinese into Thailand, into Siam at that time. And then they were mixed with local ingredients, right? They were mixed with the kinds of ingredients that you would find in Thailand. And it was, you know, it would just have been called like, you know, the Chinese stir-fry. And then when the nation state of Thailand was invented, when we changed our name from Siam to Thailand... Our government essentially just said, we will market alongside this new nation state called Thailand, a dish called Pad Thai. And that is how Pad Thai came about. But Pad Thai is now a part of our culture, right? Like it's food that Thai people eat and it's food that non-Thai people eat. And Thai people and non-Thai people love it. I know a lot of of my friends from abroad ask me like, is Pad Thai like an actual thing or is it just like something that we invented? I'm like, no, 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 no. Pad Thai is totally a Thai food that Thai people love to eat. 
too. But what's really interesting there is that, you know, no one, no one is coming and saying, wait, Pad Thai is like a cultural appropriation of, of you know, of like of, of noodles. No, it's like noodle culture is part of the history of the whole of Southeast Asia. Like we, you know, it's just how people, when they move and they communicate and they share cultures, the food is naturally going to be shared. And so noodles are now a part of Southeast Asian culture because of, because of, you know, how people, you know, from China moved and Thailand has influences from Indian cuisine because there are a lot of Indian merchants and Indian traders that came. So that's why we have curries okay. in, in Thai food and also from the Muslim communities that, you know, so I think that I'm like, thank God all those were created. What, what's interesting here is that in the same way that, you know, in, so although I had to sort of tell you a little bit about the history of Pad Thai, once you eat Pad Thai, you sort of can taste it immediately. Like you, you're like, oh, that totally makes sense. Why that history makes sense. And thinking about how like blockchain in terms of like supply chain works, and you know, all the ways, you know, there, there are some problems in terms of bridging IoT with 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 supply chain and, and and like physical items but i think that there's also a way for us to when when a person encounters or experiences this artifact of culture like a song that's been made in a particular way that in the same way people are talking about supply chain where you can trace you know whether the sardine was like sustainably farmed i think it would be really exciting if you could like literally trace back and it's like yeah lunke like made Absolutely. this you know well, and yeah, i mean this this is the whole idea of provenance right which is in it, it's one of the strong ideas I think in the general crypto space which when we talk about like the collection of art you know like one of the ideas related to provenance that's been introduced in the NFT market which is of course we could have a multi-hour conversation but one of the really strong concepts there is this idea of you know perpetual resale royalties and stuff like this like the idea that mm, the idea that yeah. the work of art it doesn't matter how many different hands it might pass through, or in this case, wallets it might pass through. There's always a clear line back to when it was created, who it was created by, by and those that that trade route that's been established is a way to send back, right? You can send back money in that case, or maybe more. And so, I completely agree with you. A lot of this is about provenance, and when we look at you know to be to be like, I mean, we go we go pretty hard on sampling as an example, just because it's kind of a really useful analog. But to also be fair, it, it would have been very difficult, you know, given given technologies available at the time. This was kind of pre-internet technology. It wouldn't be very difficult right. to establish that provenance right. in a fixed way. The, only- the technology that was developed is the law. And it was imbalanced and not not proportionally attributed to everyone. Totally. But but now we have the tools, right? Like now there are tools to to establish that provenance. And I agree with you. I mean, the anytime I speak to anybody, like irrespective of of where they come from. I think food is a better analogy. I mean, I see sports also as a weird, this kind of like a very diplomatic, like people want to know, like they want to know where things come from. They get a huge kick out of it. It, it broadens their world. And, and if there's a theme that runs through this whole conversation, you know, is, is starting with the, the timbre translation. It's really just this idea of, you know, all of the great benefits that can come from, you know, frictionless translation, right? Like, like the world gets bigger, the world expands, the more you know about this stuff. And I completely agree with you. Like, I would be fascinated to learn. I, I would be fascinated to learn, to learn and, and pick up that information. 
Yeah. Or even, you know, a, a very simple example of this, but like I, I saw an NPR documentary recently on Jersey, Jersey club music. And like, I really like Jersey club music and I learned so much from that. And I was like, every time that I come out with a song that has like a Jersey club beat, I always try to like link this to his like, if you want to know more about this beat, like listen to it. Cause it has huge influence on me. And if there was a way to like automate all of that attribution to say like, this is what I was influenced by. And this is, this is like the sound that I was influenced by having some of these technologies in place would, you know, I, I feel like so many people would get a kick out of it. Much like, you know, when you play the song and you tune in to, to an interview with the person, you're like, oh, I did not know that sound was like from this particular thing that they did. Yeah. there at the end, but I think that you're talking about all of the different contributions to Jersey Club music and how cool it would be if you could track them all. Is that what you were saying? <laughs> Sorry, you yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty much. So, so I I came across Jersey Club music, and it has a lot of influence on my music. And I recently learned about its history in New Jersey and and Baltimore, and it was really well done. And so whenever I talk about Jersey club music uh, or if my music has it, I always try to be like, look at this documentary because it, it tells you everything about it. And th this conversation of attribution kind of reminds me of that, where it would just, it, it would be a transparent way to automate all of this attribution, which is attribution that I, you know, naturally want to give when I'm working on these songs. I think, you know, true fans and, you know, music lovers, they, they love that deep dive. They love crate digging, you know, and that's now like kind of like YouTube digging or whatever. And so, yeah, I think, giving people more information and more tools is, is only a positive thing. But I feel like we should cover your, your latest project, your big AI, the AI song contest. contest. Before we do that, though, we should establish what the AI song context context. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> we need more AI song context. <laughs> Where's the light? So uh, we should probably establish what the AI song contest is. Would you be able to let people know roughly what the process is and like, yeah, what, what the organization does? Yeah, so the AI so the AI song contest basically is a yearly competition that, you know, is pushing the boundaries of what you can do with music and, and AI and teams can enter from all around the world. And AI in music is quite broad, right? You can use AI to synthesize lyrics. You can use AI to synthesize melodies. You can use AI to synthesize sounds. You can use AIs to analyze things. And so the rules of the competition is that you, you can use AI in this very broad sense as a part of your toolkit. And then, yeah, there's a, there's a whole judging process. Last year, last year they had uh, Emogen Heap as, as like one of the judges. So there's some really, you know, some really big name artists in there. Last year, I actually was invited as one of uh, to, to help moderate a, pa a panel on called the so Sounding Differences, and it was a, basically a panel that focused on submissions that were on musics from around the world. So we had we had a submission that was from Korea. We had a submission that was based on Nepalese music, and another tradition that was based on another song that was based on Spanish Spanish lullabies. I, I, I forget the details of that one exactly. And it was just, honestly, for me, like I, I hadn't taken part or had anything, I didn't know anything about the AI song contest before that until the invitation. And it was just so inspiring to see how these different musicians were using AI and to also hear the songs and and that this existed. So I, I sort of said to myself, I was like, okay, like I really want to take part in this like next year. This is so cool. And so this year, this year I'm, I'm taking part in the contest. Again, it's a similar, you know, very similar rules from last year. 
you know, you can use AI in the process. AI means a lot of different things. And you also submit a max of four pages that is a process document that explains how you use AI, which makes a lot of sense because, you know, it's such a new technology and it's, it might not be immediately clear from the song how it was used. You know, imagine back in the day where it's like, a you know, when we had like switched on Bach, like people had to explain that like this was made using a synthesizer. But now you don't need to explain that. You just take it for granted that it's a synthesizer. So I feel like in the AI world, World. And you know, as 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 you may also have experienced in your in your own artistic practices, there's still this kind of like explanatory context where it's like this is how the technology was used that people may not be aware of. Yeah, yeah it's it's funny. I mean, although I, I would credit DDSP and other techniques we've been using for tam- live timbre transfer, you know, often we'll say we've definitely spent years and years explaining things, and what's wonderful about it is that. With live transfer, you kind of don't have to explain oftentimes anymore. It's like, I'm singing and a flute is coming out. (laughs) That is sufficient. You know what I mean? Like you don't have to, that's been a great gift that you've definitely contributed to. And I'm very grateful that you have (laughs) because yeah, the the explanation era was, uh, you know, was, was cool, but definitely like challenging. So when do the results come out from, I guess because it's a contest, someone will win, right? Right. So, so the way that it works this year is that I think 15 finalists will be chosen and it will be broadcasted on their website on June 15th. And then there will be, uh, these will be chosen by, by a panel of judges. And then there's going to be a public voting from June 15th, I think, to the end of July. And the scores from the panelists, uh, sorry, from the judges and also the public vote will sort of be combined together. I believe that's, that's what's happening this year. So how did you, how did you approach it? I, I, I've, I've read the document. I have to say that the, how do you pronounce the instrument that you that you modeled? Yeah, so it's called the B So B is a cl- family of instruments that I best describe as kind of being the more aggressive cousin to the Sounds oboe, incredible. like much piercing. Yeah, it's a piercing sound, you know, very very important in Thai culture. Is this instrument usually used in. I mean, I'm sure it's used in more than one context. But what would be the most yeah. common? Yeah, yes. So, so the B is, is, a, is a very important part of sonic culture in Thailand. So if you go to a boxing game in Thailand, boxing games are always accompanied by music because it's what keeps the crowd like, excited. It's what, it's what keeps everyone you know, engaged. And it also signals like, the different sections of, a, of, of the fight. You know, if you're in round one, round two, round three, someone's won, you know, they stop. So the B is used in that context to hype up the crowd. The B is also used during a very important part in Thai culture, which is Y Kru, which literally translates to paying respect to your teachers. And at the beginning of a boxing match or at the beginning of a concert, there's always this moment where the performers or the martial artists, it literally looks like a martial arts dance where they pay respect to their teachers. And again, we have the B that accompanies that very, very important cultural moment. If you go to different kind of maybe like celebrations in the countryside and, you know, it's like a festival and they're opening the festival and they need to have like an overture, the B is also a part of that overture too. So this instrument is has a very, very strong part in Thai culture and like signifying very important events in a community. In, in those kind of festivals or is it more of a watch and listen that's so I think it, it, it depends on what the, the music is. You know, if it's at the beginning of a ceremony and everyone's sitting down, they probably just be sitting down. But, you know, if it's like in the context of a dance, you know, in, in, in a provincial Thailand, yeah, of course, people would totally be dancing, right? And even the, even the, the martial arts, why crew 
it's 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 very very dance like if you've ever seen this in in a, in a Thai boxing game it's it's like it's it's yeah, very it's very, very dance like choreographic but something about the timbre of this instrument like made me want to like jump up and like it's battle move around it's, it's like it's a battle it's instrument high it has, energy yeah, yeah, yeah. it's very Ooh. augmented by the, okay, the it, it makes a lot of well that's true <laughs> It's in the south of Thailand, the Muslim communities in the south of Thailand, they have a martial arts called panchak silat, or in English it's it's like panchak silat. I'm not sure how to pronounce it in English, but it's a martial arts that's practiced, you know, not just in Thailand, but, you know, in Indonesia and many other parts of Southeast Asia. And again, there's a B. It's a different B. It's called the B, suna, instead of the B, nai. And this particular instrument is used in the context of both matches where there is actual you know a, a fighting match going on but there's also a, another form of which is like a dance form that's kind of the best way i can describe is kind of like capoeira it's it's like a dance martial arts and it's experienced as a dance so so also has a version of it that's kind of capoeira like and again you have the b that's used in that context so yes it's an instrument that is supposed to sort of like it, you know, invigorate you to, 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 to move. Yeah, no, it, it definitely, it definitely <laughs> it has, has that effect. It has that, it has that quality. <laughs> yeah. It's, I love those. It's awesome. Yeah. I love those like thick, thick, like woodwind instruments where like the, the tones are like slightly detuned to produce this almost like chorus effect. It's really, detuned really. Detuned to your ears. Well, no, you know, no, but I mean, it's more that there's just like a lot of different tones happening at that point yeah, in time. I'm using the the chorus analogy, but the it was also really cool as well because I noticed in your write up, you I was reading through and it's like Kiam's in there, like a shout out to Kiam, and then you also brought up Flux Pavilion with these kind of like very yeah. like how would you put like why absorbing kind of bass tones and flux pavilion is also somehow connected to this podcast because he's really really close with jmo jay springett who when we're talking about like permissive ip or any of these ideas around ip has published a great amount a great amount on that and jay's always like oh you should get you should get flux to, to come wow. on. it was crazy also, reading it i was like this is really i know who all these people i don't are. know i don't know if this is tmi but also apparently he has a really novel approach to his business where he does a lot of equity sharing with his teammates in ways that most musicians don't do so yeah. really interesting yeah so it, it's funny to see it all go go full circle when i was reading it i was like of all the people to bring up wow. there's another one who's like somehow you know be meshed with the it's amazing and so in terms of in terms of the music and the process I'll link to I'll link to the song. We're also going to have CJ and Dadabots on the podcast too because we thought it'd be kind of fun to have a have a few different AI song contest entries uh, yeah. to cover that. I also feel I feel bad. I think we may have been invited to judge and really? Yeah, and I think it may have like slipped through the cracks somehow. It's only just it's coming to my mind now. I know you would have had like a shoe in. <laughs> it's, pro- it's probably better to be honest. I feel like I feel like yeah, I feel like we're 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 almost too involved with all this stuff that it would it would be kind of weird for us to judge. But the but but yeah, that's 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 really exciting. I look I look forward to seeing to seeing how how it how it all goes. Is there anything else from that process that you would like to share? Yeah, so I, I think this song was really exciting for me because you know I, I think when when I first reached out and I and I and I you know just chatted with both of you the first time you know it was I, I didn't really have an, like an artistic aesthetic on on these things like I I can talk about technology and culture but I didn't really have a musical manifestation of any of my ideas and this was really the first time where the song literally manifests everything that I've been talking about and believe in in the technology and the culture space. 
but I'm finally able to bring it like full circle and make make music that embodies all the technological and cultural like aesthetics that that, that I believe in. And it was it was a really wonderful experience. And and you know I'm very proud of this song because it takes all these ideas together from the AI side, from the culture side, from the tuning side, and I really hope that it, it inspires you know for 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 those who are listening from like Southeast Asia like what modern music from Thailand or modern music from Southeast Asia can sound like. I'm excited by the ways that these technologies can supercharge Thai music to, to just sound in a completely new way, you know, much like Fiddler, much like Tone Transfer, just completely expand the, the sonic context of this music. But I'm also really excited that this is, I think this is an example of a way where if you're not from Thailand, right, and you understand this process, that this is a way for people to come and explore and to experience like these really unique tonalities in Thai music and do it in a way that is actually represents the way that we experience them in our cultures. You know, like this is exactly how the Binai does it. And and we have a technology that allows you to literally do the exact same trill, you know, down to the down to the precise hertz inflections. And and you know, so it's it's like if you want to use, you know, if you want to use Thai fermented chili paste, like this is the real thing. Like this is this is Thai fermented chili paste, the way that it's meant supposed to be eaten, you know? And uh, I'm just really excited by that. It 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 the song manifests like all of those different things about cultural empowerment through technology. And that's the most, you know, that's the most exciting thing for me in in writing this yeah, piece of music. Awesome. And and that's yeah, we totally relate to that too. It's like you I mean the, the one thing you absolutely have is like a very coherent and very kind of like realized practice. You know what I mean? And so it feels really good when you have all these kind of like, again, to use the analogy, you have all these kind of ingredients and then event at some point dishes come out of those ingredients. You know what I mean? It's like, but, but it, it's yeah. difficult to, it's difficult to, to get to that point, but like at some point it kind of clicks and that's the beauty of actually taking the long path in a way of like trying to like, put all the put all your tools on a desk and like be like somehow somewhere this has got to fit yeah so i mean so it's a but it's a, it is also a really rewarding point to get to i completely relate to that where you're like oh okay like this actually produced something that again doesn't need to be explained we can just be experienced yeah not, not to fanboy too hard but to be quite frank when i when i first spoke to you i think it was like one or two years ago i i remember writing in my notebook when i was trying to figure out like okay if i were to make a music project what would that music project stand for and and, and I, I kid you not i have in my notebook it's like it's like I, I want to do what like Matt and Holly, what they're doing, but then I want it to be like, I want to be like the Southeast Asian version of like the same ideas, but celebrating like Southeast Asian music, but have the same, like, here is a song, here is a machine learning model. Here is all the technical and artistic conversation around it. So it, it, it's like, it was really inspiring to, to see the, the narrative from your projects. Cause it really, it really informed like what I wanted to do. I was like, Oh, I want to do the same thing. But then like, I guess like my twist would be like, you know, I'm just going to be doing it in the context of Southeast Asia and finding ways of connecting this with That's my home really culture. Kind, and you're definitely doing your own thing. And we find it also extremely inspiring. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the, the, the feeling's very mutual. That's very, that's very, that's very wonderful to hear. But yeah, but I think that's, that's also the point. I mean, it's part of the idea with the podcast. I mean, we, we, we cover a lot of conversations on the podcast, but generally speaking, it's like, it is this, it's a two way, it's a two way inspiration engine where it's like, there's all these people who are 
you know, thinking about complex things and like trying to like realize very complex things. And yeah, it is, a, it is, it, it can also sound like a, a support group sometimes because <laughs> it is, it's a, you know, it, it's hard to, it's hard to realize these things, but also really spiriting to, but also really spiriting to see, to see when things do get realized. Right. And it is a long journey to get there. But I mean, yeah, yeah. you are, you are definitely on your own, on your own path here. This is like, yeah. Oh. Thanks. Thank I still, you. I appreciate I that. Still want to at some point either print or or own one of those instruments. I remember when we first when we first came across that project. This would have been this would have been years ago now, but but we'd also actually thought you know around about the time when Proto was being made, being like God, you know, there's so much potential here for like some of these ideas to be put into a new, a new kind of hybridized instrument. And you were like the only person on earth who we could find who had actually done any work, any work in that domain. So yeah, I I think, I don't know, I I would love to, yeah, I'd love to see that, that, that thread continue at some point too. But look, we've, we've been, we've taken up a bunch of time. We do have one question that we ask everybody though. Mm -hmm. What does Mm -hmm. interdependence mean to you? Ooh, interdependence. You know, it's so funny you asked me that question <laughs> because, so I'll tell you the funny, the reason why I'm cracking up and then I'll give you my, my, my answer. But, but in graduate school, I was at the Georgia Tech Center for Music Technology and I was working with Gil Weinberg, who, you know, is a pioneer in the robotic musicianship space. And a lot of, actually a lot of my aesthetics about how, you know, robots and AI and musicians should be performing and, and collaborating with one another. A lot of my aesthetics are, are really inspired by the time that I that I spent working working with him and, and also at GTCMT. And I TA'd a class where we had to make TA'd a class where we had to make musical instruments that were interconnected with one another. And so. It was it, whenever whenever we we had a performance, it was always like inter. What, what it's like? What are the interdependencies? What are the interdependencies? And it sort of became a running joke within within the TAs and like the students. And then you know, outside of that class, we, we'd be like, "Oh, dude, like I, I just it's like you should check out this like new code thing that I made." And you're like, "Yeah, but what are the interdependencies?" Because right. it was like this inside joke. And you know, whenever I whenever I chat with my old friends, you know, from from that time, we would be like. Well, what are the independent interdependencies? This is a great answer. Yeah, and it's just really funny because it's, it's a very specific word. Like you, I, we we have never used the word interdependencies outside of that context. Like whenever we use interdependencies, it's always in the context of that class that we TA'd and that specific set of musical instruments that were designed to be interdependent. And we just sort of made it like a kind of like a funny inside joke where we just say everything, you know. But what are the interdependencies? You had a, a great chat with Scott Moore from Gitcoin about this, where we used the term in that case relative to let's say dependencies in like a usual software or like open source software context Mm. where it was like you know the idea which is very very related i think in some ways to the conversation we were having about attribution remuneration with with cultural with cultural work you know they're trying to do a lot of work right now to get open source developers paid and 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 accredited for for all the the stuff that spawns out of of their work and we were joking there about the interdependencies as opposed to dependencies which is you know the usual vernacular so that's great we get to add 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 more add more of that lineage (laughs) nice nice Okay, so so to, to my answer, I think the first thing that I think of when you say interdependencies is that you can't do things alone. 
it's, it's impossible to, to do things alone. And that if you want to affect change or if you want to develop something new, if you want to do, come up with a new musical style, if you want to develop a new technology, if you want to affect change at the governmental level, you know, across all different domains, you can't, you can, you can't do it alone. And if you, even if you can do it alone, you will always be able to achieve yeah. more and when, when you work with others. And so I think interdependence for me is basically a very, it, it's, it's a core important part of that process about working with others to, to achieve something that you believe in. The minute that you're not working alone, like interdependence is basically what makes or breaks a project. Couldn't put it better ourselves, I guess, <laughs> to fit the theme. Yeah, no, it's, it, the, the, this is, this is the truth. That's the, yeah, the, that's what we come down to. I was asked it recently and I was like, yeah, the, for me, it's just the truth. You know, it's like talk about like how things work. Yeah, provenance or any of these ideas we discuss, like provenance, like teleology, like just weird. And it's like, yeah, like in our experience, which is, you know, something that's what you just said is absolutely true. Right. And then, and you have like, you know, distorted, distorted languages or just uh, like a distorted understanding of how things work, which tends to fall in the realm of promo language or whatever. And then you have the truth, which is that like, yeah, it takes a, it takes a village to do a great many things. So yeah, I, I, I appreciate, I appreciate the, the that, that, that definition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I really resonate with what you just said too. Fun and informative and awesome. And we'll also, I know that you're someone that we're going to have cause to invite back on very soon. Well, I feel like there's also so many possibilities to maybe collaborate even outside of a podcast. 100%. I don't know. It just would be nice to stay. Yes, know, please. It's been totally wonderful. It's been an education. I'm glad we got to talk as much about food as we did. It's made me super hungry. Because we're really like, <laughs> ravenous right now. And then we're going to go, we're going to go find some something. And yeah, look, I really look forward to having you back best of luck in the ai song contest and with your new home and yeah thanks so much yeah thanks so much for for giving us your time appreciate it thank you very much it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with both of you on the podcast okay well awesome bye